0: How are we doing? Oh my gosh. I can't tell you how great it's, it, it is to be here, to see all of you guys. It's been a long time, I feel like, since I got to talk to Salt Company, and I love Salt Company. If you guys, that's right, if you guys don't know my name, I'm Ernie. If you haven't learned it yet, you have like a month and a couple of weeks to learn it because I'm leaving. Uh, where are you going, Ernie? We're going to Cincinnati, all right? We leave in June. That's right. So here's the really cool thing about where we are. We got a killer set of elders. We have a great staff team, and that doesn't mean our elders will kill you. I mean, they're like awesome. I don't know if that's still, that language still works with uh, Gen Z, yeah, whatever. And so, and then we have, get this guys, we have 60 people on our launch team. We need to be louder about that. That is stinking awesome. And so here's something that's really amazing, an opportunity you get to partner with us. Uh, We've asked each one of them to get three to five people that will commit to praying for them weekly. So if you know somebody and they haven't asked you, I mean, they don't think that much, I'm kidding. uh, You should definitely go to them and say, hey, can I be one of those people? And there's another opportunity to pray for them because not this Sunday, but next Sunday at seven o'clock, Candéo said, hey, we wanna host a prayer service for Mercy Hill Church as it goes out. It will be happening here, not this Sunday at seven. If you show up this Sunday at seven, you'll be here by yourself but if you show up in a week from sunday we'll all be here there'll be a lot of us here and you'll be get to pray for us you get to worship with us you get to hear a little bit about the things that we would love for you to continually pray for so i am really excited about all these things and i'm excited about tonight's tech particularly because when stephen said we're teaching acts i was like stephen you gotta let me teach acts eight Like, I love Acts 8. In fact, there's no intro. We're going straight into the passage. Open up to Acts 8, verse 26. Some of you may be familiar with the story. We're going to read all the way through it, and then we're going to talk about it. But let's pray before we do that. Jesus, I ask as we look at the Word of God, uh, Lord, that it would just be more than words on a page. It would make its way past our brain and the way that we understand things into our hearts, and it would transform us radically, not because of good teaching or great atmosphere or great singing, but because it is the Word of God that we are reading. And these are stories of people who have followed you and you have used in incredible ways, not because they were so incredible, but because you are incredible, Lord. So, Lord, let us not look at these things in Acts and say, oh my gosh, well, of course Philip did that. He's Philip. Philip was a nobody. Philip was just a guy. God, you love to take ordinary people and use them in extraordinary ways. And so, Lord, I ask that we would see that. What could, the big impact, I ask that we would see the big impact that we could have on the world around us is not because of our greatness, but because of yours and that you are within us. We love you, Jesus, and we praise you. Amen. Okay, Acts 8, get ready. goes, now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise up and go towards the south, the road that goes down from Jerusalem to, to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and he went. And there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, a queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all of her treasure. He, he had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning seated in his chariot. And he was reading the prophet Isaiah. The spirit said to Philip, go over and join his chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading the Isaiah, the prophet, and asked, "Do you understand what you are reading?" And he said, "How can I, unless someone guides me?" And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now, the passage of scripture that he was reading was this: "Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter; like a lamb before the shear is silent." So he opened up his mouth. He opened not his mouth, and in his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe this, his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? And Philip opened his mouth and began with the scriptures. He told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water. And the eunuch said, see here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop. And they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And then they came up out of the water and the spirit of the Lord carried Philip away and the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, but Philip found himself at Azotus and he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Cassaria. See, when you read this story, it's kind of odd for the book of Acts because it starts out like, the, it, it's so magical and it's full of fairy tales and there's people teleporting everywhere. It's, it's, it's a weird story to start out the book of Acts because the book of Acts is such a frank, honest document. Like when you read through the story of Acts, you see stories of failure and trials and triumph. And it seems just brutally honest. But right here at the beginning of it, this marvelous scene where there's like angels and people teleporting. In the middle of it, it's like this extraordinary character, an Ethiopian eunuch accountant. It's like the story has to be true, right? Could you imagine Luke like writing this? Like, no, really, it was. It's like, come on, pick somebody else. Like, really, an African eunuch, that's an accountant? Like, you're picking that character? It's like, because it's true. Only way it could be there. It's insane. And when you look at all this stuff in this picture, we can often get carried away with the grandeur of it all. You know, the first thing that draws your attention is like, wait, Philip, teleport it? Tell me about that. And that stuff kind of takes up the foreground of our mind. But I want us, as we look at this passage, can we just move that to the background? Because I think this story is a picture of some core fundamental missional values of what it means to follow a and sending God. And the reason why I want us to move some of the story to the background is because it's easy for us, if we, just, if we keep that in the foreground, it's easy for us to frame up the story in a time or a place that isn't here or something that happened long ago when God wasn't working people, but he doesn't do that anymore. I wanna to suggest to you tonight that Jesus still is at work. That there are Phillips all over. There are Phillips today. People have heard the Lord speak and they've climbed in the chariots all over the world and had extraordinary interactions. And when we get carried away with the bigness, the crazy things about the story, we miss what it is for ordinary people like you and me to be open to following a missional God to sometimes the most strange but incredible places. See, I wanna tell you a story before we go back to the text. The story that a pastor told me about one time when he visited Cambodia. Uh, He would visit Cambodia pretty regularly to do these equipping meetings with pastors. So he would meet in a room that's like 10 feet by 10 feet and they'd all just stuff in there and they would just listen and be equipped for hours and hours and hours with no AC. It's like a thousand degrees. And so he's doing this at one point, one of the several times he's done it. And he, he looks out the window and he sees the Brown River. And as he's just boiling alive, because it's so hot, he's like, man, I wonder if at break I could sneak out to that river. And as he gets to break, he notices a guy in the back and it's this Cambodian dude that is wearing a, like a black leather jacket, has wrap around reflective sunglasses. Like, it's like, dude, it's a thousand degrees. I don't know if you realize that. He's like, who is that guy? Maybe he's like the janitor or his security. Maybe I was like, who is that person? And as he's wondering, he's like, oh, whatever. He just walks out the door and he goes down to the river. And of course he doesn't find any wind because it's Cambodia. And I don't know if any of you have been to Southeast Asia, but it's extremely hot extremely just humid, and he's sitting there, and that man walks up next to him. And he means up asking him, like, hey, who are you? He goes, hey, my name's Abraham. And he's like, Abraham, he's like, you don't really look like a pastor. And he's like, no, I'm, I'm not very good at looking like one of those. And he's like, what's your story? Pastor asked him, what's your story? Abraham's like, I, I'll tell you that in a minute. But before I tell you that, do you notice anything different across the river than the last time you were here? Pastor's like, Yeah, I do. It looks very different. He goes, Maybe last time you were here, you noticed that there was a squatter village over there. People who had built their houses and homes out of scrap metal and bamboo. And the pastor was like, Yeah, I do remember that, Abraham. What happened to that? And Abraham told him this Well, because there's been some stability in the country for the last couple of years, investors are interested and buying that land, and the government wants to sell it, so they had to be moved on. He's like, what does that mean? And Abraham said, I was standing right here, watching as these trucks just pulled up over the hill. And a man got on a loud speaker and said, you have one hour to gather all your things and get into the truck. He said, you couldn't imagine all the screaming and yelling in the chaos as mothers and fathers went looking for their kids, grabbing what things they can as they're herded into vehicles. And then as they get in there, seeing bulldozers come over the hill and just push everything, their homes, their shops, into the river. And Abraham took off his sunglasses. He said, that's my parish. And Abraham begins to tell his story about how he became a pastor. He said, man, I was into smuggling and I was, I was really good at it. I had a bunch of friends I did it with and they got caught and then they tried to flip a dime on me and so I had to go into hiding. And I missed the hiding, I bumped into a person. They led me to Jesus. So I start reading my Bible. I start showing up to church and I just start driving my pastor nuts because I kept asking these questions about what does the Bible mean? And he, and he did what many of us will hear your pastor do to you sometimes, like, right? Like, you just need to go to Bible college. You need to get the education. You need to take this class. You need to just go figure it out. So he went to, so he went to Bible college. He got a degree and he started knocking on people's doors and he's like, hey, I am a pastor. Here's a paper that I have. Imagine this guy in leather jacket, reflective sunglasses, big dude, was a smuggler, tattoos all over. He's like, I am. I I have a degree from Bible college. I can be your pastor. He just said, Door's closed. Door's closed. Like, no one will hire him. And as he's married and his wife's pregnant, he says he found himself on that river just looking at God, going, What are you doing with me? Why am I here? Why have you led me to this place? Why did you tell me to do this? What's the point? And he said, it was at that moment that the trucks pulled up and all that yelling and crying and screaming. And he saw them all packed in that truck. And as they were packed in the truck, he said, he heard like a voice that said, there's your church. So he jumps on his motorbike and he begins to follow them. And the pastor asked him, Abraham, where'd they take him? He's like, where do you think they take them? They take them to a swamp, an hour outside the city. They take them to land that no one wants where water up to your knees in the wet season and up to your ankles in the dry season, a mosquito infested, useless land, where the truck dropped off all these families and said, here, you can live here. The pastor asked Abram, what'd you do? He said, well, I went and I got my pregnant wife and I packed ourselves up and we moved into the swamp with them. And like they did, we found scrap wood, iron and bamboo. We made a home and we lived with them. It's like, what would you do next? He's like, I didn't know what to do. I didn't know what to do at all. I just started praying and I got to thinking. I thought, well, when Jesus returns, there'll be a whole new world and a world of justice and peace. And so all I could think about to do is just give them foretaste of what that would look like. And I just thought, well, in the world to come, we won't live in swamps, we'll live on dry land. The pastor's like, well, I kind of took that as an obvious thing. Yeah, and he goes, so, so what he did, he said, so I did is I called my friends from Bible college, and I got them all together, and I got their friends, and I got all the men to, in the village, and we started digging channels, and we dried up the land. So now we live on dry land as an expression of the kingdom of God. And he said, then I looked at all the children and they had rotten teeth and there was disease and sickness. And so I was like, ooh, I know who has lots of money. Churches in America have lots of money. I'll get them to bring over their doctors and they'll set up a clinic right here and now there won't be sickness and disease. He's like, oh, and also we live in these metal homes and they're like ovens during the summer. So I'll get them to also start building fetch houses and people live here. And now they won't bake like ovens or die of disease as an expression of the world to come. man and after that he starts schools churches, houses guys this man was sent by the angel of the Lord to live in the sum and create foretaste of what was to come Abraham Hang is not a special person he's just simply a person that was willing to hear to obey and to go And when the pastor heard Abraham this, he goes, I got to see it. So they got on the bike. He says, after an hour of riding through away from the town, he shows up in the middle of the swamp. There's this high spot where there's a village. And as he sits in a cafe and the Cambodians come over to him, they begin to tell their stories over and over again. I was an alcoholic. I beat my wife. I did this. Now Abraham showed, led me to the Lord. Now I follow Jesus. Now I have a life just story after story after story after story. And the pastor's like become overwhelmed. And he's like, he can't even fit it into his mind. He's like, well, what did you read? Like, who taught you this? How did you learn this? Like, what book, you know, did you read? Like, you know, was it, was it gaining by losing? Was, like, what was it? And he goes, and Abraham looks and goes, well, I found the book of John helpful. Luke. Acts. He's just a guy. He's just a guy that read the gospels and went where Jesus sent him and put it into practice. So here's my question for tonight. What slum might you be sent to? What slum? And it doesn't have to be like, don't think poverty and all that stuff like that. Just think like, it could be a very nice slum. Like it could be a dorm and you and I, it could be a a sorority, a fraternity. It could be a complex, it could be a club. It could be a place. Where is God sending you? Because I think the story I just told about Abraham Hang mirrors the story read in Acts. Is it not? I think it's a story of an available man sent by the Holy Spirit, sent to particular people, and there in the midst of it, he saw God's hand at work. See, now I want to point back to the passage. I want to point to three core missional values about what it looks like to follow Jesus and be missional. The first one is this. All missional practice is a result of obedience to the work of the Spirit. Let me say again. All missional, write this down, practice is a result of obedience to the work of the Spirit. One thing you guys need to think, be thinking of is, who has the Spirit sent to me? And don't get caught up in the story about angels speaking. Because in the book of Acts, it's a bunch of different ways. Like for Paul, he had a dream to go to Macedonia, to the, the church of Antioch. It was like communal like, like consensus to send out Barnabas and Saul. For the Jerusalem church, about the restrictions of Gentiles. It was about conversation and debate. It could have been through debate. It can be through intuition, as like Paul who decided that he had to go to Rome, even though everyone told him he was gonna die. He just had this thing in his heart that said, I have to go there. But however it comes to you, however the Spirit speaks to you, one thing is clear is when it speaks, it always says go. What does the Spirit say to Philip? It says go. It says get up and go to Gaza. And I know, guys, how much we love the Holy Spirit to tell, like, to be like, to think about the Holy Spirit and tell us how God loves us, and how we're special, and it's amazing. And I get butterflies in my stomach whenever I think about you. Oh my gosh, it's so intimate and so tight. Listen to me, guys. God loves you. He loves you. He loves you more than any person can love you. If you need to hear it again, I'm going to tell it to you again. He loves you. Now, here's the thing: can we believe that and move forward? God loves us. He's called us to love him and he's called us to love others. See, what I see in scripture is when the spirit speaks, it's not devotional, it's missional. It's get up and go. It's because at the very essence of who God is, the triune God is, is he's missional. Missional just means sent. And that is who God is. You wanna know what God looks like? Look at Jesus. What does Jesus look like? He looks like a missionary. He looks like Abraham Hang, someone who went to the slum of broken humanity and raised up a hill of salvation for people. You want to know what the Father looks like? Look at the Son, the sent and sending one. You know what Christians are at the very center are meant to be? Sent ones. My fear, guys, is this, is that we've turned into the moral ones that we turn into the singing ones. And it falls so short of what God calls us to be. Guys, I don't know about you, but I don't want my faith to be defined by how much I sing. I want my faith to be defined around the degree in which I mirror the very image of God. And since God is a sent and sending God, we then need to be recognized by our sentness, people that go, So whom has he sent you to? What dorm, what club, what sorority, what school? Where after college, where will you go? How will you be a part of the mission of God wherever he is sending you? Second principle is this. Mission is always expressed through relational proximity to the people whom we've been sent. And that's just a mouthful right there. I'll say it again. Mission is always expressed through relational proximity to the people whom we have been sent. It results from obedience to the spirit and is always expressed to those that are close to you. Here's the rule of thumb when it comes to mission. You are missionally effective. Your missional effectiveness is directly proportionate to your relational capacity. If you are too busy to build relationships with people across the hall, across the dorm, in your class, then you will have a small missional impact on people's lives. And this is why I love working with college students. Because you guys have the most freedom and the least amount of responsibility you will ever have in your life and the highest relational capacity you will ever have in your life. And that's why God loves to use you to transform communities. That's why God loves to use you to change cities and countries and people. Because you have the space and you create it. So the Spirit says to Philip, get up and go. What does he do? What does he see? An Ethiopian eunuch. Of course, there's just millions of them everywhere, right? See him all the time. And what does the Spirit say? What does it say? Look at the text. It says, go closer. So he goes closer. He's a Jew. The eunuch's not. And he overhears the eunuch reading Isaiah. Crazy. And he asked, What do you know what that means? And the eunuch responds, how, how could I unless someone explains it to me? You know what he's really saying? He goes, How could I unless a Jew tells me? Oh, you're one of those. Come over here and tell me, tell me, what does this mean? Now imagine as that door opens. Imagine this moment. Imagine where Philip is. He's like, I've obeyed the Spirit. I've come, it said, Come closer. I've gone closer. Oh my goodness, he's reading the book of Isaiah. And now he's asking me to come in. How many rules as a Jew is he about to break? How many religious and cultural norms is he about to break? Could you imagine his foot just hovering over that step just for a minute as he goes, am I really gonna do this? And as he steps into that chariot, he has broken all kinds of religious and cultural rules but he's followed the call of the Spirit. I imagine the scene is something amazing as they poured over the scriptures. I mean, that Jew has broken so many rules, but can you imagine what that African man is feeling as the truth of Jesus is being unlocked to him? I mean, he's a God fear, he's a man. He's, not, he's a man that is not Jewish, but he follows God, the God of Israel. Like he just went on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to worship God during the Passover. Can you imagine what that was like for him? As an African, as a Gentile, as a eunuch? How many times, how many times would he hear this? You can come this far, but no further. You could participate here, but not here. You could worship here, but not here. You can do this, but not this. How many times did he find himself negotiating, just getting a little bit of Passover, just a little bit of Yahweh, just hearing a little bit. How many times did he hear sermons and have to peek through the door crack to hear them, just to hear the celebration of what was happening? So when he sits in that chariot and Philip explains the gospel, that when Jesus died, the temple curtain, the thing that separated man from God was ripped now, and that he has free access, to God the Father. What do you think he's feeling at that moment? Don't you see the question the eunuch is asking when he says, see, here's water, what prevents me from being baptized? It's so touching. Don't you hear what he's saying? He's like, I've just been working through all these, these, these roadblocks for weeks. I've just been negotiating all these ways. like, please tell me that I could have access to the Father through the Son. Please tell me I can be baptized. Please don't tell me this isn't for me. Please tell me I am a part of this kingdom and story too. Guys, unless you're willing to get into a few chariots, you're never going to know real missional effectiveness. Unless you're willing to enter into some slums, you can't phone it in, you can't just go and leave. You gotta be willing to live in it. And you may break all kinds of religious and cultural and even your parents' rules to do it, but you have to follow the leading of the spirit. So if the first question is this, to who have you been sent? The second question is this, what chariot do you need to get into? Where do you need to go tonight, tomorrow, next week, after you graduate? What cultural rule will you have to break? Whose expectations will you disappoint? in order to follow the spirit. The third principle is this. If you obey the spirit that says go, if you practice proximity, you will be inspired by God's prevenient grace. And when I say provenient grace, what I mean is this, you know the word convene, just put the word pre in front of it. It's the idea that God is at work in someone's life before anyone convened on their life. So, Abraham goes to the slum and he convenes on their life. Philip goes to the chariot and he convenes on the eunuch's life. God was already at work before they ever showed up. Look at this man. Look at the evidence of God being at work. in this man, he's traveled all the way to Jerusalem for a Passover. This man knows what it is to commit. He, he, he's in charge of the money of the queen. He's a man of responsibility. God has fashioned responsibility in this man and has fashioned an idea of to truly commit to something. I mean, he knows how to lay it on the line. Do you understand what I'm saying? Like he knows what it is really to commit to the cause or something. He's a eunuch, okay? He knows how to commit, okay? And God has built a characteristic of commitment in this man has fashioned belief in God and he's reading the book of Isaiah. And a believer turns up to explain it to him. See, what you will discover is this. If you embrace the voice of the spirit tells you to go, you will embrace the idea of proximity to whom you've been sent. What you will discover is that God is at work in those people long before you ever showed up. Why would he send you there if he wasn't already at work preparing for you? You know, Ephesians two eight nine and 10 says this, for it's by grace that you've been saved, not of works, so no man may boast. But then verse 10 says this, you are the workmanship of God, created in him for good works, that he, God, prepared beforehand that you ought to walk in. When you go, guys, trust and believe that God is at work before you ever set foot on the ground. Dare to believe that God wants to do something, that he's already working before you, not just behind you. I will share one more story that illustrates this. Guy named Patrick White. You don't know who he is, but he won a Nobel Prize years ago 70s and 60s. He was an openly outspoken atheist living in an openly gay relationship, extremely arrogant guy. In his autobiography he tells this crazy story about about something happened on his farm. He lived on this big piece of property. His farmhouse was at the top and they had a bunch of dogs as he lived with his partner there and they had a bunch of dogs at the bottom of the hill. And during that day it had been raining for weeks beforehand just Tons of rain. So he had to go down to feed the dogs. So he got a tray, put all these bowls and all these dog food in it, put on his raincoat, his rubber boots. As he starts walking down the hill, he slips. And food flies up there. He falls smack right on his back. And this is what he said out of his autobiography. He says, as I laid there in the mud, with dog food all over me. And I looked up at this bruised black and blue sky with the raindrops as big as baby's fists falling down on me. As I laid there, I began to laugh. I laughed and laughed and laughed. He said it was as if he heard a voice say, who the hell do you think you are? He says that he crawled back to his door and looked at his partner and said, I think we need to go to church. Do you think the God of the universe would be mean enough to pull the rug out from a Nobel Prize runner? You know, of softness, kindness, and goodness. I think he would. Here's the end of the story. The next Sunday he went to church and the pastor stood up and he said that at the day before at the county fair, he saw many of his members he saw many of his members participating in the jelly bean guessing competition. And since that was a form of gambling, they would have to come forward and confess their sin before they could take communion. And this is what he wrote. He said, at that moment, Manley and I realized that whatever faith we might have had It needed to remain an entirely private matter. I think God is pulling the rug out from under people all the time. I think there are people in chariots in their dorms reading the book of Isaiah day in and day out and we're too busy to meet them. Imagine you're Patrick White's best friend and you play darts with him every Tuesday at the bar on the hill. And one day he comes up to you and he says, something really strange happened to me the other day and you would be right there within proximity, sent by the spirit of God to announce to him the name of the God that he has met but cannot know whom he has encountered but does not know. Men, women, listen to me. Do not fill your days with busyness. Don't waste your life chasing silly things. Instead, cultivate a spirituality with the Lord so that when you hear the sending word of the Spirit that makes you brave enough to embrace proximity of the slums, go humbly and gently, not thinking that you are taking God to that place, but cooperating with the Father whom is already at work and teasing out a yearning for salvation among those that don't even know the name of Jesus. To whom have you been sent? Where do you need to go? And how is God working? Do it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you so much for this story where you took an ordinary guy and you used him in extraordinary ways because of who you are. I thank you that it's a story like that because we are in a room of ordinary people that have met an extraordinary God. And Lord, I just ask that you right now would begin to bring names, groups, people, family members, whoever it is, God, that you begin to bring names to our hearts and minds. People that you are already working in their life. God, I ask that these men and women would not waste their life on things that won't matter in a thousand years, but they'll give themselves to something that will. Lord, use them powerfully. Transform our campus and our city and our world. And Lord, we wanna be used by you. So let us see with the eyes that you are giving us, hear with the ears that you've given us and feel with the heart that you've given us because of the mighty work of your son. Jesus, we love you and it's all about your kingdom.